Welcome back to the newest episode of People Are Wild, the podcast you know, you love, and maybe even adore? Huh? No. Anyways, I'm Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse, and I'm back this week with a co-host talking about a disease that initially left me very much like Cher Horowitz. I was clueless. In preparation for this episode, I have lit my Rihanna prayer candle and listened to the Zac Brown Band's timeless classic, Toes in the Sand, on repeat for about an hour. So we're ready, if you're ready, to talk about how people are wild. In this month of March, I've had a bit of a theme for profiling women who are badass in some way, shape, or form when it comes to medical topics or sometimes emergency situations, which you will see next week. But this week's episode is not going to be any different. But instead of me telling you a story of courage and perseverance, I used another lifeline. Instead of asking the audience, Regis, I'll phone another friend. Okay, wait, no, that's not allowed, Regis. Okay, well, it's 2018. Regis is actually out. Chris Harrison is in. And I have yet to recover from Ari in the Bachelor finale. I don't want to talk about it. She took him back. I just, I can't. Anyways, we're going to get down and dirty. We're going to get right into this week's episode. I am going to have to pull that lifeline, though. I have a co-host, and so joining me for this week for co-hosting duties and bringing awareness to Lyme disease is one half of the Southern Bells, that is the Corpus Delecti, Delecti podcast. She's charming and disarming. She's sugar, spice, and everything nice, but also with a slight fascination with the world of true crime. And she's my kind of people, with that sort of curiosity into the macabre. And she took time out of her schedule to be with me, so I'm excited to have Lindsay on with me today. Go ahead and give a little intro about what your podcast is about and what we're going to be talking about. Awesome. I will. Thank you so much. So Corpus Delicti is a true crime podcast, and we're based in the South, and so we bring a little bit of a lighthearted touch to it, never at anyone's expense other than our own. So we talk about some lesser known and some more known cases, but we just kind of try to dive in and discuss how it happened. Today, I'm here to just kind of discuss my journey with chronic Lyme disease. So number one, she's going to keep me in track on a lot of this stuff because there's some terms that I'm not quite familiar with. And Lindsay, you actually have a bit of awareness in terms of Alabama and and the Lyme disease community there specifically. So go into that just a little bit about what you actually do within your community at a regional level. So I volunteer with the Alabama Lyme Disease Association, and we're in a unique position because in the South and in Alabama, there's a misconception that it doesn't exist here, which is kind of weird because we live in tick country and we're all about hunting and deer season, so it's here. So we really work to kind of make change at a state level and kind of funnel that up through the rest of the U.S. So we do patient interaction. If people need help finding a doctor or have questions, need to know where to go to get tested. We also try to make legislative change. We got Alabama to form a tick-borne diseases commission to kind of help uh, educate doctors and nice. people around here to kind of help kill that stigma. Going off of that, as a healthcare provider myself, I honestly, on a personal level, didn't really know about Lyme disease that much until obviously I went into nursing school. And we did even then only touch on a little bit. And it wasn't really until I manifested this this appreciation and love of the outdoors that ticks became something that I knew about 
And then Lyme disease became something that I knew about as a result of ticks. It wasn't really until my my late teens that I started to, to even realize that was a thing because I grew up in the desert southwest. All we have out there are scorpions. That's it. I mean, oh, and rattlesnakes. Also bad. Also, also bad, bad, by the way. <laughs> but, like, I can tell you all about envenomation. I have a friend who got a, a few scorpion stings. I've had a couple friends who've gotten bit by rattlesnakes. They're fine. They're all fine. But but that's all I knew. That's that's really all I knew in the desert southwest. Actually, to this day, I do shake out my shoes in fear of scorpions hiding and, like, snakes hiding in there. So, even when I went to Antarctica, I shook out my shoes every single day, and there was no way that a scorpion could be there, but I just, I, I had to shake my shoes out. Uh, <laughs> so, going back to the ticks, though, yeah, I really didn't even know that that was a, a thing uh, until I went to, I would say I went to Arkansas for one of my assignments, which is somewhat closer-ish to where you're at, and, and I instantly became terrified of getting a tick bite because I learned way too much about the bad parts of Lyme. I mean, we could kind of go into about why ticks, tick bites and, and everything are so, I guess, not scary, but can, you know, you want to be aware of them is because ticks are the vectors for a lot of diseases worldwide, which is such a reassuring thought um, when you get bit by a tick. Uh, you bet. So, so it, but it is, it's worldwide and, and it's not just regional. We're going to do a lot of myth busting on, I think, this, this episode especially because tick-borne illnesses in my research and what I've been taught, so I can bring a little bit of wilderness medicine into this, is that tick-borne illnesses in North America specifically are Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Colorado Tick Fever, Lyme disease, and uh, another bacterial one, I think it's what, Tularemia? That's yep. not, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's and that's just a few. That there's, is just a few. Yeah, there's way more beyond that. So kind of scary. Yeah, and, and like I said, it's such a comforting thought. So <laughs> these are a lot of sexy, fun phrases and words and terms to bring up at any dinner party. But what I can say is that there's a lot of stuff going on with with signs and symptoms regarding tick bites and ticks in general that you should be aware of just with ticks specifically and this is again going into wilderness medicine and the things that we're taught are a little bit about being aware of people who have fevers muscle aches rash fatigue and joint pain and then one of the other things too is that you learn about prevention so we can just touch on that real quick off the jump obviously tick checks at least twice daily while you're out in tick country it's hard to be like well what's tick country it's pretty much I would say almost any country, <laughs> but it's um, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, if there's if there's a tree or grass, you should check. <laughs> right, and you should do it at least twice daily. I mean, even if you're only out there for like two hours or something, like check yourself, check your kids, check your friends. Um, it's a great way to have a first date because you're just gonna be like, I gotta take my shirt <laughs> off real quick. Can you please check me for ticks? And then you can you're like, in. So you do, you want to make sure that you're performing tick checks at least twice a day, you know, or even more, depending on what you're doing and where you're going. That's also advised to wear light colored pants, uh, long pants and shirts while out in tick country. So you need to consider using DEET and... Permethrin. Because I can't say that word. <laughs> to repel ticks from you and your clothing. You want to remove all embedded ticks immediately by grasping them close to the skin with a pair of needle nose tweezers and you pull gently, steady traction in line. There's a lot of YouTube sort of videos about that, about how to remove ticks gently and safely. Do not burn them off. What? Whatever you do, do not burn them off. Why do you people will cause do it that? to regurgitate and then all of the 
bacterial contents will spill right into your blood. Don't do it. Plus, don't burn yourself. I'm like, why would somebody... But you know what? People are wild. And, People uh, are wild. They will burn that. <laughs> they will try and burn ticks off of themselves. I'm like thinking about all the tick bites I've ever seen in the ER. And yeah, or uh, there's there's one going around where people are putting peppermint essential oil on it, and the tick backs out. Don't do it. It'll won't don't it, do it. Won't it bury in? Make, uh, no, it will back out, but Ugh. it's because it makes it regurgitate, oh. and you're just letting it dump all that right into your bloodstream. You don't want so. that, you guys. You don't nope. want that. You do not. We do actually see people come into the ER for like their chief complaint. Their reason for coming in is a tick removal. And it's because sometimes they've grasped it wrong and they'll grasp the body, but the head is, like, still stuck in there. And I swear to you, this is a legit medical reason people come into the ER. Um, So I've seen it happen so many times in so many different places that they will actually have a stock pile of tick removal kits and there's a proper procedure for putting in certain things. And they get the tick out for a lot of these people. Is it a medical emergency? That's a whole different story. Technically, no. Technically, it's not according to emergency medicine, but I get why a person would be concerned. So we're there 24-7. Are we going to kind of make fun of you behind your back about coming in for tick removal? (laughs) Possibly. But we'll still help you out. I promise you, you will get help out. But maybe just reconsider about going to the ER. So the thing you also watch out for is that if you are in tick country and you might end up actually needing to be evacuated, it would be due to having a history of that embedded tick, which may even be upwards of several weeks uh, in the past. And then all of a sudden you're out in backcountry or, you know, you're just out camping and you develop a fever, rash, or flu-like symptoms. And that's when you would consider maybe getting help for your friend, getting help for your family, getting help for your situation, whoever's there, because that could be something else going on that needs to be further tested immediately. That's kind of my weird intro into tick-borne illnesses. We're going to focus more a little bit about Lyme disease. So the reason why we're doing that is because, well, Lindsay has chronic Lyme disease, but she's also an authority on a lot of other stuff with tick-borne illnesses. But we're going to, we're going to kind of... I like that word. I'm an authority. She's an authority. (laughs) She, uh... She has power. She is empowering herself. I mean, honestly, when you bring awareness to your own conditions and diseases, it it is empowerment. And I do, like I said, I'm very honored and and grateful that we're going to be doing this together so that I can make sure that things are correct and also highlight your your journey and, and what it is to have Lyme. Because I see it in the ER. This is horrible. But I see it in the ER as just part of your medical history. And... It's kind of just what I'm conditioned to do. And what I'm challenging myself with maybe even doing this is finding more about what goes into a day in the life for somebody who has chronic diseases. As I'm doing that, I'm hoping that people listening are seeing that sort of chronic aspect of things, that people live at levels of pain and people people's normal routines for them are anything but normal for a lot of the rest of us. So... That's kind of why it's like, all joking aside, I'm challenging myself, but I'm also trying to challenge the people who listen to this to be like, fibromyalgia is real, and so is Lyme disease, and so is endometriosis, and so is a lot of these chronic conditions, and we can all learn from it. If I can learn from it as a nurse, anybody can. So that's my little aside on that. Why don't we kind of go into a little bit about 
how Lyme disease is sort of transmitted and and a little bit about sort of the misconceptions and the myths surrounding Lyme. And we talked about a little bit earlier how Lyme is worldwide. So that I think is a good starting point. But since we're both kind of based in North America, a lot of the stuff that I pulled from um, and I got resources from is specific to North America. But please just remember that Lyme is actually worldwide. Tick-borne illnesses are worldwide. Lyme disease is transmitted by the bite of a tick and it's a bacterial infection. It is primarily transmitted by a certain species of tick. What is that? Deer ticks. And on the West Coast, sometimes black-legged tick. You can look up pictures. They're kind of gross. Actually, they're really gross. Ticks are just gross. They are. They are. I mean, if you have animals, you know ticks are gross. So, right? Dogs? Yeah, they get ticks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yes. I don't have animals, clearly. But ticks are tiny arachnids that are found in wooded and grassy areas. So people think of Lyme as being an East Coast disease because that's where, I guess, most people equate wooded and grassy areas with. But it's not. It's found throughout the U.S., It's in more than 60 other countries, and I'm sure that there is going to be more and more uh, diagnoses as testing gets gets better and better with diagnosing people with the conditions. But, you know, one of the sites I read, I really like this one, is that ticks know no borders and respect no boundaries. So (laughs) it's kind of like an (laughs) ex-boyfriend. I I mean, it's blood-sucking, right? Oh, well played. (laughs) <laughs> it's embedded in you for a while. I'm thinking of leeches, I think, maybe. Sometimes they carry infections. They do. Yeah, <laughs> and you suffer for the rest of your life because of it, in certain cases. And they know no borders and respect no boundaries. Well played. <laughs> Ticks are like exes. You know, for Lindsay, you like to you like to say that, again, that it's not specific to one state or to one nation or another. So it, it's not really accurate in reflecting, like, their Lyme disease risk because people travel, pets travel, yep. ticks travel. Yep. It's got to be different for every individual, right? Like, like for you, like, kind of take, take us through a little bit about your journey. I mean, was it really tick? Can you go back and be like, maybe it was a bite or was it this or that? Is it hard yeah. to say? Yeah, it's very hard to say. So, first of all, yeah, ticks don't stop and see a a state border and say, oh, got to turn around. You know, they just, they don't do that. Uh, And they, you know, they discovered Lyme in the Northeast. So, they thought it's kind of concentrated there. But, again, things don't stay there. So, it, it has been identified in every single state. So, if anyone tells you that it's not here, that's, it's not true. That's one of the biggest things that we hear in Alabama. So for me, I'm in a weird position because I grew up in Mississippi. I lived in Virginia for a little while, and now I live in Alabama, and we don't know where or when I got it. I have never seen a tick on my body in my life, and that's very common because they can be really small. If you get a baby tick, it looks like a speck of pepper, you know, and if it's in your hairline or something, you're never going to see it. So I've, I've never seen a tick on my body, therefore we don't know when it happened, I never got the rash because the the bullseye rash only shows up 50% of the time. So I never got that either. So we just didn't know until things started snowballing. And unfortunately, that's the case for a lot of people. Right. So like you said, it says fewer than 50% of patients with Lyme disease can actually recall a tick bite. And uh-huh. in some studies, this number is as low as 15%. So it's, yep. it's a crapshoot. It really is in terms now, of when you got it. If you can't recall a tick bite. And now let me throw this out there. 
there's still a lot more research that has to be done on this. But in Germany, they have found Lyme in mosquito saliva. So could it be transmitted through that is now that maybe in the equation. everything. Right. That changes everything because who hasn't been bitten by a mosquito? Now they still have to test, you know, is it viable in the saliva, blah, blah, blah. But there is definitely a school of thought out there that, I mean, they're, they're both bloodsuckers. So... Right. So can it be? It's mm-hmm. it's plausible, but maybe not proven at this point, at the time of this recording. But going back, like you said, the, the bullseye rash, we could touch on that real quick. So although it's considered a classic sign, it's not the most common no. sign. Atypical forms of this rash are actually seen more commonly, which means that it's misdiagnosed. I mean, if it doesn't look like a duck, talk like a duck, it's going to be an otter. You know, if if it's not the bullseye rash and it's not specific, a doctor's not going to think right off the bat right. that your rash, that you have like a blotch on your arm and you have a blotch on your neck. Oh, that's Lyme. If a right. doctor did that and they were dead on, where are they from? Because they must be <laughs> from somewhere in the future where they can like pick up on something. Or maybe they're like house because he said everything was lupus. So maybe that's He's a doctor. But maybe that's like the doctor that's like, it's Lyme. Everything's Lyme. And then he gets that, like, two percentage that he's right with that rash. But for the most part, I mean, if you're looking for something specific like a bullseye rash, they're not going to connect the dots if it doesn't look like that. Right. Now, on the flip side, though, if you do get that bullseye rash, it is Lyme. Right. It is. It, it's, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's. It's, it's confirmed, exclusive. actually. Exclusive. Yeah. Like, it's, it's. It is 100% Lyme. And it, it requires no further verification prior to starting an appropriate course of antibiotics because it is a bacterial infection. At that point, I mean, if it looks like that and everything else matches up, that's Lyme. I mean, that's yep. that's pretty much, boom, right down the line, it's Lyme disease. Going back, I mean, Lyme disease is a clinical diagnosis. The disease itself is caused by these spiral-shaped bacteria, which are called spirochetes. I do know how to say that word. <laughs> but there's a specific type, and... I even wrote in here that it sounds like a new dish at Olive Garden, but I don't know if I could say it. <laughs> Try it. just It'll be fun. Borealia? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> sounds delicious. How do you say it, Lindsay? Help me. <laughs> now I'm uh, like on the spot. Borrelia burgdorferi. That's a, I practiced that a few times. That's a delightful child. Where do they go to school? Do you think people name their kids after spirochetes? Well, I know that the spirochete was named after a person. That's true. <laughs> Maybe His name was Will, was Willie Bergdorfer. Aww. So that's where it came from. You know what? That's like when people name like... No, it's like the, the reverse of that. It's like when you meet a child named Chlamydia. <laughs> 100% happened. Um, Are you serious? Yes, that's just one of the things that about uh, working in the ERs, I've seen a lot of different name spelling, and I can see, like, a trend of, like, who nerds are and who weird people are. Like, I've seen, actually, I've seen people name their kids Mara Jade, and I was like, oh, they like Star Wars, that's cute. I've seen, what's his name, the guy from Supernatural. Cassio? Yeah, I've seen a kid named that. <gasps> no! Yeah, uh-huh, like, a newborn. And I went up That's to them. Amazing. I didn't know too much about Supernatural. Clearly, I don't. But I knew that much that I walked out and I was like, oh, do you guys like Supernatural? Because I can't say your kid's name, but I know it's the Supernatural people out here. And and the family walked up and was like, That's us. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> That's the most amazing thing ever. That's my favorite show of all time. Okay, going back to our Olive Garden dish. So these fire key that is responsible for Lyme disease is called Borrelia. 
Bergdorferi. This Lyme spirochete can cause infection of multiple organs and produces a wide emphasis on wide range of symptoms. And we'll get into some of those in a little bit. That'll probably get you riled up, Lindsay, getting into all those symptoms. And also, it's going back to the spirochete thing, it is present to syphilis. So if you imagine how bad syphilis is and things you've heard about syphilis, the main difference between the two is that it's to get rid of than syphilis. Right. So they operate very similarly. Some of the symptoms are similar, but it's, it's actually worse. Like syphilis in the 19th century, it is actually shares the, the name the great imitator. And yeah, it, it, it does. It shares a lot with syphilis in terms of being misdiagnosed and not seen. But on a physiological, biological aspect, it, it actually kind of shares the, the spirochete factor in there too. Uh-huh. The CDC, which is Lindsay's favorite place. Yep. oh no she doesn't well no okay just explain it i don't want to put words in your mouth but you and the cdc and lime they're they're not the best friends trying to think of the uh the way to explain this without sounding cray cray the cdc is not completely up to speed on all the new research that has come out with lime there are we we keep a list at the lime association of 700 over 700 peer-reviewed articles showing the persistence of Lyme, how, you know, antibiotics don't always eradicate it, and all the things it can cause, and they still are in this mindset that it's an easy-to-fix. Some of it has to do with conflict of interest, but that's neither here nor there. I won't get into all that right now, but I don't even know what I was saying. Okay, so so, so, um, on the CDC website, they say that surveillance criteria in terms of for Lyme disease, it was devised to track a narrow band of cases for the sake of epidemiology, which is the bread and butter of the CDC. There are epidemiologists there that work with doctors, that work with regions, that work with a lot of different stuff, that they do good work, but in terms of Lyme disease, they will say on their website that it was never intended, what they gathered was never intended to be used as a diagnostic criteria nor was it meant to define the entire scope of Lyme disease. So that's their way of saying, oh, we might be wrong, but we right. didn't really intend for it to be that way. And it's hard for, for me to reconcile that because if we're basing things off the CDC and they're basing things off of a super small percentage of people that they, they talk to, it's hard to, to put that into the mainstream. And it's not just Lyme disease. It goes with a lot of other diseases. But, you know, just for the sake of staying on topic, it would be frustrating because everybody is unique and individual in diseases in general, but especially with Lyme disease, just doing research for this episode and reading what you were able to to send me, I was just like blown away because I only see blurps of it, really. Like I only see stuff in my wilderness books because it's stuff I need to be aware of. And then in that setting, and then with the ER, all I know is how to remove ticks. So that's what we do. I don't see anything beyond that. And all I know is that Lyme disease is from ticks. Until this episode. (laughs) Well, and think of it this way, too. Like, the surveillance criteria that they set up, the blood test that they use identifies certain bands of the bacteria. Well, speaking of people are wild and the crazy things that our bodies can do, one of the things that Lyme does is it 
evades your immune system. It tricks your body into thinking it's fine. And those bands are produced by an immune response. Well, if your immune system isn't responding because it's being tricked by the disease, it's not going to produce the bands. So that's where a lot of the information that the CDC has and some of the updated information have discrepancies because recently scientists have identified that that's happening and it's still trying to make its way through the CDC so they can incorporate that into all of their information. Like across the board. Yeah. Instead of what they have now. They said that on on one of the the, uh, sites that there's five subspecies of the Lyme disease spirochete. And we have to keep in mind, we're only talking about Lyme disease. Like, there's so many tick-borne illnesses. And there's over, uh, you know, easily over 100 strands in in the USA alone, 300 worldwide. You want to talk about a disease that's unique to every individual. It can literally be unique to that person in a whole entire region. So to approach treatment and therapy the same for every person is stupid. I mean, it's impossible. I, I mean, it's it's silly and it's a waste of time if you're going to just be like everybody across the board is just going to benefit from antibiotic therapy and you're yep. only going to be this one form of antibiotic therapy. So right. and like you said, it, it evades the immune system, which means that antibiotic therapy isn't going to do jack shit. So that just leads to more and more chronic infection. And now you have antibiotic use. That is a whole nother topic um, about the overuse of of that antibiotics that causes something else that might happen to that person uh, later on down the road. So, Which is also why it's important that they catch it early because if you can take seven days of antibiotics versus months and months at a time, obviously you're going to be better off, which by the way, nothing says that seven days of antibiotics is enough. I'm just throwing a number out there. But that's also another reason why the testing is so unreliable because like you said, there's several strains of it and current Mm -hmm. tests can only identify one. I've got all these other strains out there that you may have and you don't know. And doctors have said you negative but it doesn't really count for much right and you know there can be co-infection at at the same time for you specifically I mean you don't just have Lyme disease right nope I actually have three tick-borne diseases so and I want to say it's don't quote me on this but I want to say it's somewhere around 60% of the time you get more than one illness again I feel somewhat confident with that. So, I mean, there's a really good chance that if you get bit, you're going to get something else. Right. So, I have three. Yeah. Um, You can get co-infection, absolutely. Yeah. Because, I mean, they carry so many different things. So, and then you're talking about your immune systems trying to fight off three major illnesses at once, which they all reproduce as well. So, if you let Lyme reproduces every four to six weeks. So, if you don't treat it in that first four to six weeks, well, you're just adding on to it. So, it just builds over time. It's bacterial. It's an infection. And I mean, if you don't get all of the infection, you're going to keep making it. Yep. It's not like a virus. It's not like a virus where viruses, I always say, viruses have deadlines. Viruses are going to kick themselves out of your system. The flu limits itself. You know, it has a deadline. It has an end date. But when it's a bacterial infection, if you don't knock it all out, it's still in your system and it can gain speed again. And it can be worse because now it might be resistant to that antibiotic that's supposed to work. Exactly. And again, that goes into a little bit of antibiotic use. And like I said, that's something that I will talk about maybe one other day, but not today. You said you have three tick-borne. What are they? So Lyme disease, Babesia, and Bartonella. Now, Bartonella is also known as cat scratch fever. 
So a lot of people have heard of that. Probably heard of the song, too. Not the same thing. <laughs> Not the same thing. No. Um, now, Cat Scratch or Bartonella is kind of misunderstood as well because you can also, and a big way that that is transmitted is actually through a cat scratch or right. a cat bite. And that actually what? can be a medical emergency, too. Uh-huh. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, a cat bite and cat scratches, we do not mess around with those because they can get bad real fast. And yep. yeah, so so that actually can be maybe not a medical emergency, but it is something that needs to be addressed emergently. So it has the potential of becoming a, a medical emergency, especially if you get infection setting in to yep. that because then you're worried about actually saving a limb. You can easily end up losing losing an arm because uh, of a cat scratch. It's not good. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let me think about it this way, too. What do we know ticks feed on? Well, they feed on pets and cats and dogs and deer. So, you know, if a cat's carrying Bartonella or cat scratch and the tick sucks that blood and then bites you, there you go. Now, the other one, Babesia, it's it's actually my worst enemy. Uh, For me, it's actually worse than Lyme, but it's a it's it's technically a blood parasite and it invades the red blood cells and it will eventually shred them. And then the pieces will flake off and infect the blood cells next to it. It's very hard to get rid of because if you don't get it out of every little blood cell, it reproduces. It's still there. So, yep. And it it affects just a percentage of your blood. So you got to make sure it's getting in all of it. Right. Like that your treatment is getting in all of it. So that's actually the one that I have the most issues with. This would maybe be even kind of a good time to just kind of touch on a little bit of like therapy and symptoms and what happens because most cases of chronic Lyme disease do require extended courses of antibiotic therapy to achieve symptomatic relief. So that's a big fancy way of saying you're going to need medication essentially for the rest of your life just to be functioning. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, you don't necessarily have to do, like, for example, in my case, I'm not personally a big fan of antibiotics, so I took them until I started to see improvement, and now I try to do more natural and, like, dietary-type management. I mean, the meds are there for, again, that symptomatic relief, so... It's not as though, maybe I should backtrack and say that, it's not as though you're going to be on antibiotics for the rest of your life, but you, you're you going to need... But you will be on stuff. Yeah, you're going to need maintenance for the rest of your life to some oh, yes. way, shape, or form. How you choose to do that is something that you get the right healthcare provider for, which we will definitely talk about that in just a little bit. You know, there's, there's very real co- consequences of untreated chronic persistent Lyme infection, and that far outweighs the consequences of a long-term therapy, be it antibiotics or whatever, for symptom management. So what I'm trying to say is that when you get that diagnosis, you definitely need to work with a doctor that is on the same page because it's a long-term thing. I mean, this is over the course of the rest of your life, and... It's it's not something that you can just come off of and then expect that everything is going to be fine. It, it's chronic. It's it's a persistent thing. So unless you catch it early, now like if you catch it in the first you know several weeks and you can knock it out before it starts growing, you might be okay. But even then, there's actually a thirty percent chance that treatment will fail. It's so. just the antibiotics themselves aren't going to be. Yeah. Yeah, right. able to take down everything. Yeah, so so most people do require a prolonged treatment, and relapses though do occur, and 
and retreatment may be required. And, and you know, you use terms like a relapse or a flare-up. And maybe people more commonly use a flare-up, I think, when they're talking about chronic illnesses. At least that's what I see, is that people say flare-up because they don't like to say relapse. But it is. I mean, people who have asthma attacks and stuff like that, I mean, that's a flare-up as much as it is, you could say, a relapse. So... I have that too. <laughs> I'm a nightmare. <laughs> I told you we're going to talk about how weird your body is. Um, but anyway, so let's just say it like this. Okay, so flare-ups do occur and retreatment may be required. And there's no test currently available to prove that it's gone it is, is what I gathered as well. Like there's nothing that says you're in remission, I guess. I mean, it's it's cured or anything to that effect. So it's something that like it sucks i mean you'd have to live like you can live for for years and be fine and then all of a sudden you have a flare-up and you're back at square one it must seem like yeah and it goes in phases like i i was diagnosed almost three years ago i've made significant progress uh but every now and then every you know few months or so i'll just get hit with a ton of bricks. And if it lasts a week or two, I'm good. I can push through. If it starts to last longer, then we usually start retreating and then I'm good in a few months again. So let's go into like, what are the symptoms then? Um, I mean, we talked about, it's kind of like a, when you first get infected, I guess is a little bit different. Um, I mean, you get the rash and sort of flu like symptoms with aches and, and fevers, uh, that's also something that you look out for, but it's further on down the road and, and you've had it for a while. What, what was your journey towards your diagnosis? What was going on? So again, it's a tricky one because we don't know exactly when it started for me, but I've always been kind of a, just a sickly person. Um, and- <laughs> like body wise. <laughs> Yes, I've just been a disaster my whole life. (laughs) um, I'm a hot mess. I am a hot mess. So we don't really know, you know, when it happened and what all with me was related and what wasn't. Now, my doctor says that his best estimate is that I was infected at least at age 15, if not before. And I'm 33 now. Yeah. So more than half my life. Right. Almost 20 Uh, years. Yeah, so it, it originally started with knee pain, and then it started with back pain, but I was a very avid cheerleader, and I also did ballet. So we were just like, you know what, it's just part of it. Well, then it turned into horrid, horrid depression, crippling anxiety with panic attacks, and that actually, that was when I was 14. I started taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicine when I was 14 years old. I mean, that's pretty young. By the time I was, like, well into high school, it turned into crippling fatigue to where I could just, and I'm not talking I got up early, I stayed up late studying for a test. I'm talking I don't think I can walk. And uh, so then, you know, it it all kind of continued. Bad allergies, sensitive skin, things of that nature. But then after I had my kids, that's when all hell broke loose. And a lot of times if the infection is kind of laying in your system, not doing much. Some sort of bodily trauma can kind of wake it up and poke it a little bit. Yeah. Or like a major like shift in something, especially with hormones of pregnancy that would set off anything. I mean, yep. But, but especially then uh, surgeries is a big one too. And I had C-sections, car accidents, 
moments. Um, the stress like response. That. Yeah. Anything where it's that major release of lots of things in your body. Yep. That'll probably yep. do it. Yeah. That'll just go into this hyper state. Yep. And so after my second child was born, I started to feel really off. But again, I was like, it's just postpartum stuff. I was having panic attacks three or four times a week. I'm talking like on the floor, like bad. Um, the fatigue and, and he, this was even when he was a little bit, you know, a few months old and was sleeping and stuff. Fatigue, like you wouldn't believe, like, I don't think I'm going to make it from my driveway to the car. And it just got to the point, I, I, I went back to work full time after a while. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because not only was I, you know, had I just had the kids, but then I'm putting my body through work stress and things of that nature. And it sure. turned into memory loss, stuttering, shaking, like hands shaking, arms shaking. I would break out into random rashes. Like, in fact, I have a few pictures where I broke out into bullseye rashes, like years later, like random bullseye rashes. What? Yeah. Periods of, insom- of, of insomnia and then periods of like sleeping 14, 15 hours, like just no consistency. Just like erratic um, sleep patterns. Uh-huh. Erratic yep. emotions. Yeah, and I kept telling myself, you know, it's just it's just life. It's kids and work and all that. Did um, you ever do the, uh, it's just all in my head? Like, there's yeah. nothing really wrong. It's just yeah. all in my head. If I get a better yeah. handle on stress in my life, everything will be fine. You bet, because I would go to my primary care doctor and tell them what's going on, and they ran every test under the sun, and everything was fine. So I was Came like, okay, normal. it's fine. This is just how it is. This is just how everybody feels. But finally, it got to the point where, like, when all the stuttering and the shaking and the really bad neurological stuff started, I was like, okay, th- I know this is not how everybody feels. So at that point, that's when they started telling me that it may be Parkinson's or MS. And at that time, I'm 29 years old, and I'm like, holy shit, no, what? And you have kids. So, yeah, so I was terrified. Now, I'm in a little bit of a better place than a lot of people because I am, interestingly, the third person in my family who has Lyme disease because uh, there's a theory about that. So I was talking to my cousin who has had it for years and years, and every time I talked to her, she was like, Lindsay, I'm telling you something's not right. And I was like, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's just life. Yep, and she kept telling me, and the longer it went on, the longer I saw that what she said matched up, and I made the connection, and um, right as they were about to start doing MRIs for MS and all that, I was like, nope, let me do this first, and that's when I sought out, uh, yep, that's when I sought out my Lyme doctor, and the rest is history. How hard was the process of finding a Lyme doctor? How hard was it to get somebody to believe you? I mean, if you find, if you go for a Lyme doctor, I mean, even they won't believe you sometimes. So it was very hard. I, at one point, literally got into a yelling match with one of my primary doctors. When I told him I had a theory about what was going on, he put his hand up to my face as if he was telling me to stop. And he said, do not say Lyme. Did you do a talk and to I, the hand? Like straight I, up out of the 90s? Much, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Talk to the hand because the doctor ain't listening? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was awful. Then I had a rheumatologist who told me, Lyme isn't in Alabama, so that's not what you have. Which, actually, Uh, just real quick, I mean, that is a common misdiagnosis with Lyme, is rheumatoid arthritis, rheumatological things, and chronic fatigue syndromes, and fibromyalgias, and somatization disorder, and any difficult-to-diagnose multi-system illness gets termed something just like, it's not Lyme, it's got to be this and that and the other. So, you know, uh, we were talking about how you were getting tested for all these things, but I just have to think in my own head, 
as a healthcare provider, I'm sure that they were thinking in their head, this is all in this girl's head. Oh, absolutely. And uh, my doctor told me several times, Lindsay, you work full time, you have kids and you're tired. And I kept telling him, you don't understand. This is not tired. This is not, I did not get enough sleep last night. It's literally, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to make it to my car from the parking lot. Like my legs are going to give out and I'm just going to lay here because I can't move. And that's one of those things that's so hard to, to verbalize to someone who doesn't feel it. And then that's the other part that sucks is because we always tell people, you know, keep advocating for yourself. And I always tell that to people. I tell that to them in the ER. And it's based off of personal experiences being on the other side of it as being a family member, seeing a family member go through things. And then that family member not being able to speak for themselves due to what's going on. And now we as their family members have to be like, I'm serious. Something else is going on besides what you guys think it is. And I don't know who I'm going to have to talk to to make sure that something happens or if I have to go to another facility, but I won't hesitate. And it sucks because that journey can be months, years, decades long. Trying to get in somewhere. Yep. Yep. Or trying to just get that one person to believe you. And sometimes well, and they, it's not the doctor, it's the nurse, or it's the 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 PA, or it's the physical therapist that says that sort of, I don't think something, I think they're right. Like, I don't think it's in their head. And they're the one that sets off the chain of events. But it can be such a process. And, oh, yeah. And it's horrible because... In the ER, we're conditioned to think one way or the other, and it's hard to step outside of that thinking and be the person that says, I don't know, doc, I don't think it's that. Because I've worked in a lot of places where doctors are very approachable, and it's not because of that, I would say anymore, that, you know, we don't, we keep things to ourselves. I would think it's because you don't want to buck the system. You don't want to be the person that's like, you know what, I kind of believe her, because then the doctor's going to be like, you're buying that? Right. And then they don't trust you in the future and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll hold it over you for a long time and be like, remember that one time that you thought this and this was happening to this patient? Yeah. And you're like, well, you know, I'm just basing it off of what I saw. Yeah. And at one point with me, I thought, because I had a cold at one point, that I had a swollen lymph node because I had like a lump in my neck. Well, come to find out, I had two very, very large nodules on my thyroid and they biopsied them and it was inconclusive. And they said, well, we got to take it out. And I said, well, hey, could this be why I'm not feeling well? Is it a thyroid thing? And they said, well, no, you're thyroid levels are completely fine. Your thyroid is working just fine. It's just a nodule. And I, that's at the point where I told them, I said, then something else is going on. If you are telling me with 100% certainty that my thyroid is not causing this issue, there is something else going on. They took the thyroid out and eight months later is when I was diagnosed because I just kept getting worse because I had another surgery, which started up and made it even worse. Yeah. So now all I have is a stretched vocal cords and a raspy voice to thank for that. So (laughs) you can work at some certain hotlines. So finding a doctor, how long did that process take you from? Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) This seems to be, you know, this seems to be a resounding sort of theme that I'm I'm hearing from. Every time I answer something, I'm like, oh. As a healthcare provider, I, I feel like frustrated for you. Yeah. Well, I would say that I started getting really, really serious about something being wrong after my second child was born, which was in 2012. And I was diagnosed in 2015. Now, before that, I had still known something was wrong and did tests here and there and stuff. But that's back when it was, oh, everything's fine. Okay, well, this is just how 
how it is. Everybody feels this way. But actively, I would say from 2012 to 2015, and I found my doctor because uh, somebody referred me to Alabama Lyme Disease Association, and they provided me with a list of people who know about it. I made the decision from there which one I wanted to go to. Now, unfortunately, there's only 15 to 20 in the whole U.S., so I, I have say, to travel I mean, four hours. Right. I mean, go. it's got to be very specific, uh, unfortunately, yep. because to specialize in that, you're kind of throwing your your own self into to the mix. I mean, as a doctor, I guess you, you have to take that leap. These are you're treating people who've had nothing but rejection in a way like thrown exactly. at them. And you're treating people who may have a lot more going on now by the time they get to you like, yeah, you got Lyme disease. But also, I think yep. you have maybe some mental health that we need to also address. So absolutely. So they can't just, yeah, they have to treat everybody literally very individualized, which is good. But it, oh, it, yeah. it sucks that there's not that many through the whole U.S. alone. There's only 15 to 20. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and that's just ones that we know of as an organization. And, you know, some of that is because all this new information hasn't been widely dispersed yet. So a lot of doctors just don't know. But these doctors actually go through training for tick-borne diseases. So, it, you know, it's it's not the same as just going to the urgent care down the street going where they may the or may ER. not know. But, I mean, my doctor is amazing when he told me Uh, I will never forget, my mom went with me to my appointment because my husband had to work and he stayed home with the kids. My mom went with me and she said something along the lines of, well, yeah, I mean, her her dad has fibromyalgia, but I guess he just kind of trucks through it. And the doctor stopped and looked at my mom and said, what do you think your daughter's been doing for the past 10 years? And I just busted out into tears because I'd never heard a doctor And my mom didn't even mean it the way it sounded, but she was just validating the fact that, hey, I hear you. I know you're just trucking through life right now. And I just burst into tears. It's got to be that moment where, like, somebody not only believes me, but is advocating for me. Right. Yeah. They're a doctor. And he can help me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. That has to that has to be a big, like, just like release of yeah. emotions for anybody. So yeah, if you're like me, like your release of emotion comes out in tears. It's disgusting. But <laughs> but I mean, you know, you've been you were you've been dealing with that for a better part of the life you can remember. That would be just like just amazing to have somebody be like, I know what's wrong with you, and I'm gonna help you. It was amazing. Now I'll throw another little caveat out there, which I kind of alluded to earlier, but my doctor also feels like, as I said, I'm the third confirmed person in my family who has Lyme. Now, we said it is a lot like syphilis. Well, we know that with syphilis, you can pass it from mother to child. A lot of research out there recently that shows that Lyme operates the same way. Even though Lyme was discovered in the 70s, it's actually been around like the Iceman. I don't know if you've heard of the Iceman that they found like frozen from the Ice Age. He had Lyme. Like they went back and like they found out he had Lyme from like millions of years ago. So. Does that have like um, in his marrow or something they found it? I have no idea. Man, how no idea. Find that? If somebody can like tell me how they found that, that'd be great. I have no idea. But there's some studies out there showing that. And me and my two cousins who have Lyme, we also have the exact same makeup of co-infections. And both of our mothers are riddled with autoimmune diseases and health issues. And my Lyme doctor and their Lyme doctor feel that there's a good chance that it's that it actually sits with our grandmother past 
to our mothers and passed to us. Like there's a hered- so, there's like a, a genetic sort of component gen- to some extent. Not genetic because it's not it's not genetic, it's not but genes. the bacteria can cross because you know it's a spirochete, so it's cork shaped, so it can it just drill through tissue. There. Yep. Yeah, which is another way that it evades treatment and is so hard to treat if it's dug down in your muscle. The medicine can't even get to it. Right. So. Yeah, there's a few other diseases outside of Lyme and, and syphilis that are spirochetes that are bad yeah. news bears because of the way that they lie in wait. Yep. They just lie yep. in wait for that so time of course, to. It's hard release. to prove if I got it from my mom or not, but it's it's definitely. A there's something to it. It's yeah. So long, so. Yeah. Ooh, that is interesting. Yep. You could be like one yep. of those case study families where. They like they awesome. sponsor you. They give you money just to be like, can we test on you? You want to give me money for having Lyme? Yes. There you go. <laughs> well, I mean, well, in some of the statistics of the CDC, I know, I know, but the CDC, <laughs> they estimate this is their estimate, so it's probably severely undered. But it's what three hundred thousand people are diagnosed with Lyme disease in the U.S. every year. Which I do actually feel like that is probably an an under. Like I don't think that's well, an overestimate. That that three hundred thousand estimate comes from using that fifty percent accurate test. Yeah. So I mean, there's so those probably are confirmed cases. So there's probably like way more people who have it, mm-hmm. but there's just not the test to prove yep. that they have it at this point to diagnose yep. them at that time until it becomes a chronic issue. But yeah, it says that it's about one and a half times the number of women diagnosed with breast cancer and six times the number of people diagnosed with HIV and AIDS each year, except everybody knows about that. Everybody knows about breast cancer. Everybody knows about HIV and AIDS. And yes, they are debilitating conditions and diseases, like not knocking that by any means. Um, But your doctor isn't going to tell you you don't have it. Right. That's very hard to dispute that diagnosis and there's a lot of funding that has gone into both of those in order to have awareness prevention and treatment um which is interesting when Lyme disease has more of a prevalence at least diagnosed in in a given population of the United States when compared to these two other conditions so it is difficult to diagnose but you would feel like shouldn't there be more funding to make it a little bit more streamlined like they did with HIV and AIDS. HIV and AIDS research came a long way in a very short amount of time. Same with breast cancer because of funding and because of awareness. Why not the same for Lyme? Like, why is there such a hang up? Why don't people know about it? Why is it? I don't know. I just, I just found myself getting frustrated about how much I didn't know and, and how, just how prevalent it is versus like, how come I didn't know about it? Like, how come I didn't have any sort of background except that, oh, well, if a tick bites you, I mean, you kind of got to watch your symptoms or else you're going to get Lyme. You're going to get chronic Lyme. And a handy tip, never talk to a Lyme patient about Zika virus. My God. (laughs) Almost spit on my water at that. (laughs) All we heard about for two daggum years is two freaking cases of Zika and we got to up the funding and it's bad news and blah, blah, blah. And we were livid. We were livid. They actually took a little bit of our funding during the big Zika scare. What was it? A year or two ago? Well, they actually, technically Zika is still going on, but you never hear about it. Nope. <laughs> Unless you're in those areas. The last two places that I've worked at 
huge billboards on every single thing. Think about Zika before you go on your honeymoon. Are you bringing Zika back with you? Then I go and I fly up to other places. Nowhere. Nowhere. But it's still around. So that's terrifying. If you're listening to this program, absolutely. be afraid. Zika's still out there. I mean, they, they took some of our funding they for it. We like, had two cases in the U.S. or whatever, however many cases it was. Yeah, I don't know, but it was a small but it was percent. Not 300, yeah, it was a small <laughs> percent. So they decided to dip into the the delegated ones for uh, uh-huh. for Lyme for Zika. I mean, I would get the whole Ebola one because that's just horrible. Um, and I get Zika if it was like, I and mean, if they're trying to prevent it from spreading. Yeah, but like, but it wasn't a pandemic, was it? Cases versus in the u.s a handful yeah so it, it kind of rubbed us the wrong way so we're not big not big zika activists. <laughs> i just say just wear deet everywhere and whatever that other one is permethrin yes thank you <laughs> it's a fun word that i don't know how to say still what would you want people to kind of take away from our discussion today about Lyme? Like, what what do you wish people knew? Because we'll get serious for a little bit. There's just so much, as healthcare providers, that we, we should be aware of. Emergency is a little bit different. Like I said, for me, it's probably not going to necessarily change the, the fact that if I see Lyme in your health history, like we're not going to tra- change maybe what we're doing for you then. Because if you're there for something else... yeah. I mean, we're not going to necessarily think about it being a flare-up, but if you tell me, I think it's a Lyme flare-up, I'm just having this horrible pain, I, I'm, I'm from out of town, we try and work with you. Like, doctors do try and work with people and be like, well, let's get you started on antibiotics then. What did you take last uh-huh. time? How can we get you from point A to point B so you can see your doctor? So, I mean, we, we do that plenty of times for people. It's it's not like we're insensitive to a situation, and we shouldn't be if if that ever happens anywhere in anybody's healthcare process that's that's you should report that person because that person is not doing right by you i just think that i don't know you know my takeaway that i got is that there's so much for for healthcare providers to learn about lyme and and believing people and like i said the er is a little bit different because we look at more acute stuff like is this Lime in progress and does this need to be addressed right now versus a person who comes in and then does say something about like I think it's a flare-up then that changes how you approach the person it's kind of like an asthma attack again like if you come in and you've never had asthma you're a little bit more heightened and you're a little bit more like we need to make sure we stabilize you and then going forward you need to do this this and this if you have an asthma attack and you've had asthma and it's a flare-up it could turn into a bad situation, but we're going to do everything we can to keep it from being a bad situation so you can go home and you can do X, Y, and Z and follow up later. So with, with Lyme, it's like I found myself, again, just being like, God, I didn't know this. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. So what would what would be the thing that you would want maybe healthcare providers to know who might be listening? And then what would you want just general population to know who might be listening? So from a healthcare perspective, obviously one would be knowing what to look for and believing that it's there because nobody wants, unless it is a, you know, like a mental condition, nobody wants to feel like crap unless you have like Munchausen's or something. But, you know, no one wants to feel like that. So know what to look for. If you see, you know, the classic symptoms, if you see the bullseye, go ahead and treat it. Don't wait. And if somebody comes in that already has it, the best thing you can do is know that they are not 
making it up. And honestly, even just telling them that will probably make them feel better because it is really hard for a lot of us to seek medical attention because of how we've been treated. And I've been through that. And um, I actually have not been back to a primary care doctor since I was done. I've been to an urgent care twice because I had like, like other and that's like, why sinus infection. Yeah. And that's you know? why I'm like, you know, the reason why maybe I say that I see it in your chart is because you would be there for something else. Honestly, like I don't see people come in because of like an acute Lyme flare up. I see people who have Lyme who come in because they think their appendix is about to burst. Okay, well then let's go and do what we do for that workup. We are going to absolutely keep in mind that you have Lyme, but whether or not that's going to change what we do, it's a yes or no versus, you know, what's going on with you right now. And, and maybe, and I feel like that's a lot of chronic things is that you live with a certain level of whatever's normal for you. You know your body probably more so than the regular person does because you know the littlest thing is off. It's going to set off your condition. You're probably more in tuned with your body. And That's, yeah, yeah. And to go to an emergency room, something has to be really wrong beyond Lyme, beyond right. X, Y, and Z because you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to be believed or, or something to that effect. You would, you, yeah. The reason you're here is because something's not right. Something is really, really not right. Yeah, and that or actually you're stranded up a good somewhere point too. too. Like you yeah. could just be yeah. location. It's just like yeah. I, I can't. I'm stuck here for a while. Something bad is happening. I don't want it to get worse. I'm gonna go to an urgent care, or something yeah. really bad is happening. I need to go to an ER. That brings up a good point too, because if a if someone comes in who has had Lyme. Most Lyme patients are incredibly well-researched because we've had to advocate for ourselves for so long that if they tell you they're not supposed to have something or not supposed to do something, believe them um, because there are certain things, for example, we're not supposed to have steroids uh, because it further weakens the immune system and things of that nature and it can make things really bad. But, you know, sometimes doctors are like, you got to weigh the risks and the benefits. And what's going on at that time, too. Right, because I've had to take them before because I do have asthma and, and things like that. But if, if they tell you something, they're probably pretty well researched and know what they can and can't have. Now, from the perspective of not in healthcare, just the general population, best advice is treat it early. I have so many friends who have come to me for advice, and I will tell them, yes, that could be Lyme. You need to go in, and they won't or they'll wait and then hmm. I, I can't feel bad for you at that point. Um, like, I, I had a friend who sent me a picture of her husband's arm with a big, obvious bullseye rash on it. And I said, go to the doctor. And I said, she said that the doctor gave him 14 days of antibiotics. And I said, at, at 14 days, let me know how he's doing. Right. Well, in, four, in 14 days, he still had a bullseye rash and a fever. And I said, you need to go back and get more. Right. I said, that is not enough. The infection is still there. A week later, she was like, oh, yeah, we never went, blah, blah, blah. And I was I you've got to. If, if you do not treat it early, like I'm telling you, in, in, in another six months to a year, he's going to be sick. So don't mess around with it. You can catch it early and you can treat it early and it will be an acute case. But if you wait, you will regret it. It's a very expensive disease. It is not easy to pay for. You don't want to let that fester. And that's a that's one thing too we should maybe touch on real quick is the fact that like insurance doesn't like Lyme disease. Nope. 
not at all. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably been a bit of a well. And and does the association that you you know you work with? I mean, you guys probably try and get people in touch with affordable things and and yes. doctors who take certain this and that. But you still uh, or uh, good RX stuff to buy your meds. Yep. But it's it's all in an effort to to cover things that are happening to a person in their body. That why isn't insurance not covering it? And it's yeah, just, and it's frustrating. It's frustrating oh, yeah. because it's oh, like yeah. these are very real things that you live with twenty four seven, day to day, three sixty five. And an insurance company is telling me that it's not going to be covered. This is my daily life. And a lot of that goes back to the fact that it was believed to be an easily treatable disease. And of course, the insurance companies don't want to hear now that it's not because then who has to pay for it? They do. So they're, they're encouraging this outdated information, you know, for, for their own benefit. And, um, it can be very, very costly. I'm to a point now where I don't have to take quite as much, but I mean, it can be 500 to $1,000 a month. Mm-hmm. I know people who are way above that. Having a chronic condition it can be a drain. And especially if you shift work or if somebody loses a job and you lose coverage, it becomes a, yeah. a, a burden of sorts at, at that time until things are a little bit more balanced. The thing is, maybe also just off of that real quick, is that there are resources out there. It's just people aren't aware of those resources where they're at and they just need to ask their doctors and not be afraid to do that. Because doctors, at the end of the day, we don't get into healthcare because we want to hurt people. We want to help people. Right. And maybe we lose sight of that a little bit because of just, at least in America, with how insurance has changed recently. But there's a lot of doctors that want to do right by their patients. There's a lot of providers who want to do right by their patients. And they mean well. But for that, every great doctor, there is doctors who are jaded. And there are doctors who are burnt out. And there are doctors who don't believe new research. And and they could care less about what Lyme disease is. You know, it's something that needs to culturally shift within healthcare to always be on the forefront of a lot of these diseases because people are living longer, which means that the disease is living longer. And... The condition is going to present itself differently because you're in your 30s and you've lived with it for at least 20 years, uh, close to it. What's it going to be like? Is this going to shift in another 20 years? Is this going to be something that, you know, you're going to have to be aware of for for your children? What's going to happen on that route? So, I mean, it's all these things that you probably continue to think about at some points. You probably are frustrated because there's such a lack of funding and a lack of awareness. So hopefully we're doing something good with this, just this discussion. Well, and Lyme itself, it has come a long way in the past few years, meaning there are groups like Alabama Lyme Disease Association and national groups too that are advocating so hard and are making change. So it's, slowly but surely coming. And we will, if there's someone out there who's thinking, hey, that sounds like what I'm going through, just because we have Alabama in our name, still reach out to us. You know, we can still provide you with a list of people who might be able to help you or answer questions or whatever. Don't let the name Alabama think make you think, oh, I can't reach out to them. The only time you should ever let Alabama stop you from something is if you actually like Nick Saban. Well, there's actually several things in Alabama where you may not want to. Nope, it's just Nick Saban. It's fine. (laughs) That's the only thing wrong with Alabama. If people want to reach out to you, what is the best way to do that, Lindsay? The website is alabamalymedisease.org. And there we have a Facebook page where you can send Facebook messages. That's fine. There's a phone number. You can call and leave a message. It's, It's a message line and then we'll call you back. So yeah, any of those ways are fine. We'll answer any questions that you have. We'll try to help you find whatever resources you need. 
So if you're good for this, we can we can wrap it up with uh with yeah. some would you rather. Do it. Would you rather eat waffles exclusively or Sweetums candy bars? Um, I'm a Leslie, so I'm gonna go with waffles. Waffles are so good. Breakfast food is amazing. I I resonate with Ron Swanson in his beliefs for about breakfast food. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> absolutely. People actually e- People in Eagleton don't know anything about breakfast food. Stupid Eagletonians. Would you rather that they bring back passions with the same cast, and I guess Timmy would be a hologram, or, I know, rest in peace, Timmy, or they bring back Double Dare and Guts on Nickelodeon? Gotta go with Double Dare and Guts. That was my jam. Do you remember when uh, when you'd always be like, let's go to Mo, and Mo would be like, I don't know, she'd give you a play-by-play? A on the crag. Yeah, because she, had- she was what, <laughs> she Australian? Was like she was Australian. <laughs> Mo, if you're listening to this. <laughs> and then, like, in Double Dare, how they had the big nose, and you would have to pick yes. the flag out of the boogers. I would get so stressed out watching that, too, because I'd be like, the flag's on the floor! The flag's on the floor! It's on the floor! And then it's like you want Skechers, a mongoose bike, and a trip to Disneyland. A mongoose bike. Yep. Yeah. Every time. Every time. Oh, that was the good stuff. That was the good stuff. I always wanted to get slimed. I really did. Oh, uh, yeah. So, follow-up question, then. Say you're stuck in Jurassic Park, and the only way to outrun the T-Rex is to go through a course, like an obstacle course of sorts, would you rather it be modeled after Double Dare, Guts, or Legends of the Hidden Temple? Ooh, I might have to go Legends of the Hidden Temple. And it wouldn't have the temple guards, because there'd just be dinosaurs, because you're in Jurassic Park. I think I'd be a blue barracuda. I would be a silver snake. I only saw one episode where they won. And it was, like, with two seconds to spare. And the girls started crying at the end of it. Oh, as you so, should. That, those were the good old days. I know. That was good old school Nickelodeon. All right, our last one. Would you rather, through a series of unfortunate events, become trapped in a Chuck E. Cheese with all the machines <laughs> off, but the animatronic band is constantly playing, or become trapped in the Pawnee Public Library with punk-ass book jockeys? <laughs> Is Tammy 2 in the library? She might be lurking. She might be lurking. You know what? I like Tammy 2. I'm going to go to Pawnee. (laughs) You like Tammy (laughs) 2. She's a good character. Just go watch Parks and Rec. If you take nothing away from this, watch Parks and Rec. Watch Parks and Rec. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Okay. So, Lindsay, give us all a refresher on how people can find your amazing podcast. That's Corpus Delicti. So, C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. Yes, I need to spell it because people spell it wrong. Um, We're pretty much anywhere. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean. We come out with new episodes every Tuesday. So if you like true crime like we do, come and join us. Yeah, True Crime Tuesdays. Yes, please go listen to them. You'll enjoy their show a lot. I enjoyed chestnuts roasting over open (laughs) flamethrowers. That was just like one of my favorite things ever. It's on a mug now. I know. I'm like, I need to get that mug. Um, they do have sweet swag, such as that. So, so again, thank you for being here with me, uh, taking time out of your day to talk about Lyme and, and kind of bring more awareness to it. You are more than welcome back anytime. Yay! You are part of the People Are Wild fam that is growing by the day, apparently. Love it. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure having you here. Well, thank you for having me. It was a blast. Special thanks again goes out to Lindsay from the Corpus Delecti podcast for joining me for this episode. She actually suggested the topic and 
as I was researching it, I realized rather immediately that I might be out of my element and I needed an assist. So she graciously and basically without any hesitation provided me with help in a way that was beyond my wildest dreams by actually coming on and co-hosting with me this week. I thank you with the utmost sincerity and gratitude for doing this with me. And look, I only said limes once just now. See, I can learn. If you've been enjoying these interviews and such, next week will be a fun episode. I don't have a medical topic per se to discuss, but I have an amazing special guest that in the course of doing our interview, we accidentally discussed something really poignant that I hope resonates with all of you. So stay tuned for that coming at you next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Now, I hope you have a fantastic week ahead, be a positive light in this world, and challenge yourself to learn a little bit more about Lyme disease. Please listen carefully. Salutations, and thank you for lending me your ears for a moment. This is Brisky from the Turn of Phrases podcast. Turn of Phrases is a show all about exploring the origins and history of idioms, metaphors, superstitions, old wives' tales, and more. New episodes come out every Monday, so come along with me as we turn some phrases. Hey y'all, come in this March, a true crime podcast covering lesser-known cases from the natural state. Brought to you by none other than me, Nikki T. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Strictly Homicide Podcast. On Twitter at Strictly H-M-I-C-I-D-E. On Patreon under Strictly Homicide Podcast. See you this March. The beautiful Sparky is called... Borrelia Bur... Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the authority on Lyme disease. I'm, not, I'm honestly not even sure if I said it right, but... We'll edit that out.